Welcome to the Mock Review with Ben and Drew. I'm Ben Garma. And I'm Drew Evans. Today on the podcast, we've got the president of the American Mock Trial Association, Will Warahay. We're really looking forward to talking to Will about all things related to AMTA, about the past, present, and future of AMTA, and especially the board meeting that's uh, coming up here in just over a week in Las Vegas. We're really excited to talk to Will about a whole bunch of different things that are going to be discussed at that board meeting and his perspective as the new president of AMTA. And one of the exciting things is that the agenda for that board meeting was just recently released by AMTA, and there's a lot of interesting things in there that we're looking forward to talking to Will about. So Drew, as we look forward to the board meeting and as we look forward to our conversation with Will here soon, Anything on the agenda uh, jump out to you? Anything about it that you are really interested to talk to Will about? Yeah, Ben, there are a couple of things. Uh, a lot of the thing for me that interests me is how is AMTA evolving? How are we kind of changing and how are we progressing with the time? And I think that if you look at the agenda, you see a lot of that there, which is really encouraging to me. Um, I think that, you know, there's a lot of financial stuff, you know, AMTA is growing and I think that it's understandable that they, you know, kind of need more money. Um, but I think that the things that really interest me are improper inventions. This was something that came up multiple, multiple times throughout the year and has been discussed at length um, through, you know, all of our different forums about what exactly it means to have an improper invention. And that seems like something that AMTA is taking into consideration and they're they're looking to to find some more specific way of writing it aside from just improper invention, because as we've seen, it's a pretty broad term. And I'm excited to hear what Will thinks on the subject. Uh, the other thing that really interests me is um, the possibility of, you know, changing what exactly the judges are looking at. Um, you know, on that same vein, we, we they're talked about reworking the judge's PowerPoint, but I'm really curious if they're going to do anything to change the way that judges are are told to score rounds with this addition to the improper inventions, is there going to be anything that AMTA wants to do to to encourage judges to judge differently? Uh, the last thing is, you know, as I mentioned in the last episode, I take uh, transparency and the importance of people knowing things really seriously. And while it's a tabled issue, um, my heart went out when I saw the possibility of uh, banning tab photos. So I definitely want to hear what, what Will thinks about that. But uh, in general, I'm, I'm just excited to hear what he thinks AMTA is going to be progressing to and how AMTA is going to be changing in the future. And I'm hoping that this uh, agenda looks like it's going to be encouraging that. Uh, but what about you, Ben? I know that you're uh, lucky enough to get to go out to Vegas and, and attend this board meeting. But is there anything in particular that you're looking forward to asking Will about now or possibly, you know, get to ask in person at the board meeting. Yeah, you know, being a mock trial coach is not always a, a glamorous gig. And when I saw that the board meeting was going to be in Las Vegas, I figured as difficult as it will be to go out to Las Vegas and, you know, suffer through the fun there, <laughs> uh, that it was my professional responsibility to uh, make the trip. Uh, but in all seriousness, I'm I'm very excited. I, I really... I've talked to people, you know, privately about just how excited I am to get to experience um, this gathering of, you know, AMTA's leaders. So I'm really looking forward to it. I agree with everything you said. I think that 
the improper invention is something I'm really excited to talk to Will about because that's a really significant change. I mean, that's a big deal and it could majorly alter the landscape of AMTA. And I am going to be fascinated to be, you know, in the room where all of these leaders of our organization are discussing this issue. I'm guessing there's going to be a lot of different perspectives from a lot of different approaches. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm generally, I think more than anything else, just looking forward to experiencing the debate and the discussion that these different people are going to have, that there's so many perspectives and so much going on in our organization right now. And I I know with this podcast, what I'm looking forward to doing is experiencing that and then bringing it back here and being able to discuss it with you and discuss it with some of the board members, because I think that that is going to be really exciting. So we're going to cut to our conversation with Will. I'm really looking forward to getting him on the line and, and talking to him about all of these different issues. And I think it's going to be a really good discussion. And I think that there's going to be a lot of interesting things going forward that we're going to have an opportunity to talk about. So after the break, our conversation with president of the American Mock Trial Association, Will Ward. Welcome back to the Mock Review. Our guest for today's episode is the current president of the American Mock Trial Association. He was a competitor at Elon University from 2003 to 2007 and helped found their program back in 2003. He coached their program from 2007 to 2013, and he's now the head coach at Georgia Tech. You know them as one of the top teams in AMTA, finishing fourth in the country in 2017-2018 and sixth in the country in 2018-2019. We are thrilled to be joined by AMTA president Will Warhey. Will, thanks so much for talking to us. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Will... I want to sort of take a step back and and go to your origin story, you know, going all the way back to 2003 and Elon and your time there. What interested you about mock trial? How did you first get involved and, you know, what sort of sunk in for you? Uh, So I uh, am originally from outside of Philadelphia. I went to high school in Westchester and I joined the mock trial team as a senior in high school. Uh, I was, kind of late to the game in that respect. A lot of my friends were on the team and kind of just recruited me up and that was kind of it. Um, and here I am, uh, 16 years later, still doing it. Um, (laughs) so uh, I went to, like you said, I went to college at Elon and, uh, went there with a guy named Patrick Elliott, who, uh, went to high school with me. Actually, we both went to Elon together and realized they didn't have a mock trial team. So we decided to start one. And uh, founded the team, competed for four years. We were pretty terrible uh, most of the time. I feel like we were kind of competitive by the end. Uh, And then I coached the team while I was in law school uh, and and afterwards before moving to Atlanta. And how uh, you started, I think you started repping um, while you were in law school. How did you first get involved with, with AMTA and moving through the ranks there? Well, as a after I stopped competing and when I first got to law school, I started hosting an invitational at Elon, uh, which is now the Carolina classic. And by doing that kind of helped make connections for me within the AMTA community and probably the, my biggest mentor within AMTA and really 
kind of in general in life in some respects is Glenn Halpin Neubauer. Uh, he very much took me under his wing. Uh, you know, he was local at Furman to Elon in the South and uh, brought me to my first board meeting uh, the summer of 2010. He drove up from Greenville through Greensboro, North Carolina, picked me up, and we drove to Washington, D.C. while I listened to him practice his speech to run for president that summer at the board meeting in D.C., probably 20 times in the car ride on the way up. <laughs> um <laughs> And he really, you know, helped me make a lot of connections within the AMTA community and, and it kind of took off from there. Interesting. And, and I think what I'm curious about and what, you know, Drew and I have talked about is you obviously, you know, you get involved with AMTA and then uh, I think you joined the board as a full member in, in 2013. So what inspired you to go from being a member of the board to ultimately considering to and then running for president of AMTA? Well, I think I, I saw an opportunity for to make a difference. Uh, and, you know, that's kind of really what a lot of this. Well, I mean, what all the board is all about is, is making a difference and making contributions um, to this organization. And so I felt that my my background was different and, and actually pretty unique. And when you look at other people who have been president of AMTA, uh, you know, I never competed at nationals. I, I didn't have coaches when I was competing. I was a student run program. We had no money. Um, and my experience as a competitor is actually the majority experience within AMTA, meaning I went to regionals in February and then I went home. Uh, and so I really felt that that gave me a pretty unique perspective to, to kind of, you know, take, not take over the organization is not the right way to say it, but to, to bring a different perspective to what we're doing and help expand what we're doing and improve upon it. One of the things that's interesting that you mentioned is coming from a student and program and then transitioning into coaching. And I'm curious, was there ever a specific moment that was the moment you realized, wow, I really want to, I want to be on the board, make a change, make some some ripples in this community that I am so passionate about, you know, as a current competitor, I, I've started to feel that way. And I hope to one day be on the board, but I'm curious, you know, does it always start young or what was the deal for you? Yeah, I think, you know, there were certain items that I felt passionate about based on my experience in the board uh, or as a competitor. Um, specifically when I, when I competed my senior year, you know, pairings in round four were done very differently uh, so round four of regionals, my last year as a competitor, my team was four, one, and one going into the last round. Now you hear that now and you think, wow, you guys are in the driver's seat. Why didn't you get a bid? And it's because pairings were still done high, high at that point in time. And so my team at four, one, and one ran into a six and O UVA team that eventually won the national championship that year. Um, spoiler alert, we lost both pretty handily. Uh, and and finished at four and a half. And we got jumped for a bid by teams that were, um, you know, below us and, and faced uh, different competition. And so that was kind of a pretty impetus moment. That became my uh, passion at first was to change the pairings to, to try to ensure a more fair result, which was in part, you know, along with a lot of other people's work, how we got to uh, the current system that, that we have. Uh, to determine bids and determine who advances. Well, and and that's actually a good segue into my next question, which is, so you you had this thing that happened to you and you decided, you know, <clears throat> you wanted to join the board. 
Can you give, I, I would guess that there are a lot of listeners out there who don't know a ton about the board of directors, maybe don't know a lot of people on the board or necessarily what the board does. So can you explain what is the AMTA board of directors, you know, and, and who are these people and what are their function, you know, in the larger community of AMTA? Sure. Um, the, the board itself is made up of people like me who are either former competitors and now attorneys. Uh, we also have a lot of educators, professors uh, at different schools. And we also have people who uh, just are former competitors or, or former coaches who have remained involved with the board. Uh, the board itself is an entirely volunteer endeavor. That means that none of us are paid. Uh, you know, we don't receive any compensation or really anything for what what we do uh, in terms of uh, the work that we do for AMTA. You know, we, we will be going to the board meeting next weekend, and that is all on our own dime uh, to travel to the board meeting every summer. Uh, you know, when you serve as an AMTA representative, you get reimbursed um, for your expenses, but it's not like you make money on, on that. So it's certainly not a financial thing by any means. Uh, I would say it's a group of people who, who like all of us feel passionate about this activity, uh, the impact that it has, the educational value that it has, and, you know, want to see it continue. And amongst that community, because I would imagine that you all work together a lot and that you have a, you know, a relationship with a lot of different people in that community. What's it like when you decide to run for president? How is that? I, I would guess that there are some people out, you know, in our listening audience who have run for president of their mock trial team. And sometimes those elections can be a little bit challenging and contentious. And so what's it like running for president of AMTA in terms of the logistics of that? <laughs> it can be similar to what you just described, uh, you know, in, in an organization where uh, it is only probably 28 or 30 people, um, you know, people who work together over a period of time, no different than any mock trial team can develop uh, history uh, and and relationships, both positive and negative. So it, it can be a, a trying experience. Um, but at the end of the day, I think the board, you know, we all understand that we have the same goal, which is to provide a positive experience for the students. And, and at the end of the day, the the board is looking to find a person who has good ideas, who see, has a vision for working and improving the organization. And, and you know, they vote to, to pick that, that person that they feel is best. I um, am one of the younger presidents. I'm not the youngest. Justin Bernstein was younger than me when he was elected. Um, but I was very young in the sense that I wasn't on the board for a very long time when I ran. Uh, and I actually ran twice. I did. I ran against uh, Frank when he won uh, in in 2014, four years ago, um, and, and he beat me in that election, which um, you know, kind of at, at the time was uh, you know certainly not a pleasant experience for me. But at the end of the day, I think that was the right decision for the organization, and I think I'm better for it, and I think the organization is is better for it as well. Um, so. You, you know, there's some campaigning involved and, and there's, you know, with any, as with any organization, there is, there's politicking involved. Um, but, you know, it's, it's also just looking for the, the best thing for the organization. Will, you just mentioned how AMTA's president is normally someone who 
the AMTA board sees as someone with new ideas, someone with a, you know, a vision of what they want to do. So as our new president, what are your main areas and focuses that you kind of want to work on, I guess, for AMTA? Uh, that's, that's an extremely broad question. I and in the course of the day, we'll have a million ideas about things that I would love to do for AMTA. Um, but, you know, time is limited, I guess. But I would say overarching, my my theme is that I, I don't want to be satisfied with where we are. I think that we're in a very good place in, as an organization and, at, at, and in terms of the mock trial community. Uh, we are forever indebted to the people who started this organization uh, over 30 years ago and who have worked to make it what it is today. But I don't think that that's any reason that we should be complacent about what we're doing. Uh, so over the course of the past few months, I've had one-on-one -on -one phone conversations, I think with maybe two or three exceptions at this point, uh, who I haven't exactly connected up with yet, with literally every member of the board, candidate for the board, uh, and talk to them about what they want to see, what they want to be doing in their ideas. Uh, I want to make sure that good ideas get heard, regardless of whether there are people on the board, candidates for the board, or competitors, uh, or members of our community. And I want to make sure good ideas turn into action. And so that's kind of the broader theme. I think, you know, a couple other areas more specifically that I'm focusing on is the incredible growth that we're seeing within the activity uh, across the nation as well as kind of a longer term strategic plan for AMTA. Uh, AMTA can be at times very reactionary in, in what we do. Uh, you know, you just heard me tell a story about something that happened to me, so I wanted to make a rule to change it. That happens all too often. And uh, we need to be more kind of forward thinking and forward looking in our planning for the organization, in, in my opinion. Well, Will, is there maybe one thing or some issue that you want to address during your tenure? I mean, if there was one thing that you could change about AMTA right now, just snap your fingers, what would it be? Um, it's an easy question, right? <laughs> right. Um, I, I, I would love to have infinite hosts. I, I, what I would love to have is both funding for the hosts and, and hosts to host our tournaments. Um, it's probably not a surprise that my passion is in the tournament area. I was TAC director for five or six years. Um, so that is, and at the end of the day, that's the primary top thing that AMTA provides. It is quality competition and, and tournaments for, to showcase all the work that the students put into, into this activity. So, uh, that would be what I would love to have. I'd love to make sure. And, and by that, I mean, I really want to expand that down to the regional level. I think we we do a great job at hosting a really awesome national championship tournament. Uh, we've been lucky to find hosts that do that. In general, our, our, our orcs are very good tournaments and very good experiences. But if you look at the impact that those tournaments have, only less than maybe 20% of the students that compete in mock trial nationally actually experience those tournaments. Uh, so my goal is to expand that experience all the way down to the regional level to make sure that everyone's experience, regardless of your record school, uh, is, is a positive one with our activity. I'm glad you mentioned growth of the organization. And I, I want to get back to the hosting aspect of it in, in a few minutes, but, but thinking specifically about growth, it's, it seems from the outside that AMTA has experienced 
massive growth over the last couple of years. I don't have the statistics that we looked and I wasn't really able to find them as to whether or not we're in a period of unprecedented growth. But either way, the organization is rapidly expanding. We had over 700 teams registered last season. I think it was slightly less than that that actually competed at regionals with dropouts, but it was still a massive, massive number of teams. And so I'm curious what your thoughts are about maybe why that growth is happening, what AMTA is, you know, is doing to handle that growth. And then do we have any sense of, you know, if we're getting anywhere close to a a tipping point, if we think it's going to stop anytime soon, or, you know, if it's your thought that this is going to continue at least for the near future? Um, I, I wish I knew the answer to a lot of the questions you just asked. I mean, the fact of the matter is our, our growth, I mean, yes, the growth is this year specifically was unprecedented. The number of teams that we uh, increased just this year alone from, from 2017 to 2018, we've never seen that level of growth before. Um, this year was the first year ever that we had a team register for a regional who we could not provide a location within a reasonable distance of their school. Um, that's never happened before. And that's a problem. We, we don't want that to happen. We want to make sure that, you know, if there's interest, if people are willing to come, we have a spot to host them. Um, we've experienced pretty steady growth over the course of the past few years. And we've always kind of talked about what that's going to mean or what that's going to look like in terms of expansion of the tournament structure. But this year, it, it really, we were pushed to our limits in terms of the ability to host the teams that we're having. You know, there's a lot of problems that come along with that, uh, with predicting it, because not only can you not predict how many teams are going to, we're going to increase by, but you can't predict the geography of where those teams are going to come from. You know, if we had increased a lot of, a lot of teams in the Pacific Northwest, for example, well, we would have been fine. But because the increase happened in the Northeast, in the South, and in the Midwest, where we already are at our limits in terms of hosting ability, you know, it causes problems for us as an organization to be able to accommodate those teams. Um, So, you know, things that we're looking at, um, we're looking at expanding the tournament structure, you know, adding regionals, that's going to happen this year adding orcs, uh, that may happen this year. Uh, and, and what that means in terms of bids and and the national championship is kind of still to be decided, um, and, and expanding the tournament structure. One of the other things that I'm doing is, uh, we'll be tasking a kind of an, it's called an ad hoc committee, which is just kind of a group of people that I get to pick and, and, and set aside to look at our tournament future planning. Um, you know, you heard me say a few moments ago that when I competed, orcs didn't exist. So when orcs came into being, that was a massive change for the organization. And what I want this ad hoc committee to look at is, is there another tournament structure that maybe better fits the size of organization that we've become similar to what we did 10 years ago when we came to this orcs system? Um, I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know what that tournament structure looks like, but I think it's a conversation that we need to be having um, before it's too late and before we're turning away more than just one team, uh, you know, from competing at regionals. And I'm 
glad you mentioned this coming season because it's actually sort of where I wanted to go with my follow-up question. So it works out well, which is that my understanding is that um, there's going to be an increase in the number of regionals this year. And there's a discussion about the possibility of adding a ninth orcs and that having an impact on bids to the national championship tournament, things of that nature. So what, and, and I know some of that is still in flux. And so, you know, we might not want to say anything until it's confirmed, but what are you able to tell people about uh, any potential changes for this coming season in terms of the number of regionals, the number of orcs and how that may affect the tournament structure for 20, I guess the 2019 AMTA season. Uh, the, the short answer is I, I don't really know yet. Um, the board at the board meeting this coming weekend, or I guess in a week will, you know, vote on a slate of tournaments that, that, you know, they'll approve in terms of tournament locations. Um, so until that's done, you know, I don't, I don't really know where those are going to be. Um, but yes, we are going to expand the regionals. Um, and as to whether we will expand orcs, I don't know whether that's for sure yet. Um, you know, in an ideal world, I think we would, but I don't know whether I think quite literally, I don't know whether we have the hosts to do it. Um, whether we have the people who are willing to do it. And, and so if, if we find the host and we find them in the right locations in the country, then I think that'll happen. Um, that will expand the number of teams that advance from regionals to orcs. Uh, there was a, I passed some motions a few years ago at the board meeting in Atlanta that exp- that allowed for the additional bids from regionals to orcs and orcs to nationals um, at the discretion of the tab director and the tag chair. So that is in our rules. It is a thing that, you know, we can do. And we just, the goal there is to keep the proportions, at least in my opinion, the goal is to keep the proportions um, in line, you know, so with expansion of the number of teams and regionals, we kind of generally want to see the same percentage of teams advancing to orcs. Um, and then there's a separate conversation about whether you want to see the same percentage of teams advance to the national championship tournament. Nationals is kind of a whole, a whole different topic in, in that respect. Well, and, and <laughs> that's probably a topic that we could do an entire session on, but <laughs> yeah. uh, in theory, just following up briefly on the, the last thing that you were saying uh, this coming year, let's say, you know, it, hypothetically, if you're able to, get a you know an additional host and maybe add an orcs uh i know the planning for the 2019 national championship tournament is already in full swing uh so my guess would be that that would be unlikely to expand even if an additional orcs was added or is that just still all be being worked out it's kind of still all being worked out um we're lucky that philadelphia and our host there grant keener and elizabethtown college uh does would probably have the capacity to expand if we wanted them to, um, if we asked them to, but, uh, I, I think that's kind of a larger philosophical discussion that the board will have, which is, do we want to expand beyond 48? You know, we used to have a national championship that was 64 teams. Um, and the board made a decision a long time ago that that was too large, primarily because, uh, there are only so many locations in the country where you can host 64 teams. And and even currently there's only so many locations in the country where you can host 48. So uh, the prospect of expanding um, from 48 is more than just literal courtrooms. It comes down to judges. 
you know, teams at nationals have come to expect three judges per trial at least. Um, and so adding more teams and more trials, you know, it's already very difficult to get to 72 per round for judging and, uh, you know, stretching that even further causes issues. Um, financially, it causes issues. And, you know, there are only so many places in a lot of cities where you can host a banquet for 500 people. So even adding a couple extra teams that's like 20 or 30 people kind of puts you in a space where, you know, you you wouldn't be able to find space in the city. For example, I've had this conversation with the hosts in D.C. when they host the national there. They wouldn't have been able to host if it was more than 48 because as it was, they were stretching the limits of what they could do with event space in Washington, D.C. And that's in Washington, D.C., which is a major metropolitan city in our country. So uh, it, it's there's a lot of logistical challenges that go along with that beyond just the competitive aspect of it. Will, I want to transition to uh, a topic that, you know, is kind of interesting. Now that you're on the board, we're kind of seeing mock trial evolve and we're seeing it continue to change, to grow. Um, but something that stayed pretty steady is the diversity on the board. Um, we did some statistics and roughly 70% of the board are white men. And of the last five uh, presidents, they've all been white men. And I'm wondering if you think there's anything that you even just want to say to the community to encourage the board to reflect more diversity of its members. Is there anything that we can be doing? The answer to that is absolutely. We, we absolutely want to encourage, uh, you know, expanding the diversity of the, the leadership, the board of directors and the, and the organization and involvement in the organization. You know, the, the running of AMTA is, is much more than just the board of directors. I think in total, we have over 60 or 70 some volunteers uh, when you look at our whole committee structure for the organization. So it is, it is much more than just the board of directors themselves. Um, but to your question about the board itself, yes, we are absolutely um, focused on and encouraging advancing diversity. That's both you know racial diversity and gender diversity. We don't have a lot of women on the board or in the leadership of the board. And, and so that is something that we're also um, very cognizant of and very aware of and is a focus on within, within the board itself. Um, you know, for example, uh, a, a good kind of anecdote about that topic is last year, my team competed in the Jacksonville, Jacksonville, the Jackson, Mississippi uh, regional tournament. Uh, round four, we went against Dillard University and they worked very hard in that round, but they, they were a new school and that was their first ever tournament. Um, after that round, I met their coach, um, who's, who's a wonderful woman. I, I've kept up with her over the course of the past year and, and I'm heavily recruiting her to be a part of the board. You know, Dillard is a historically black, uh, college in the country and, and we're trying to expand and specifically target HBCUs and encourage their involvement in an organization. And, uh, I've talked with Angela Miner, who's a board member from, you know, and coach of Howard university about targeting specifically HBCU colleges to encourage their participation. And certainly through that, we hope to encourage the coaches and leadership at those schools to become involved with the board itself. Um, you know, Dillard is a, is a great story because then this year in their second year, they, they got out of regionals and went to orcs and competed very well. And, and their coach is becoming involved with the board. And I certainly hope, you know, in the coming years that there are many more stories like that both of the competitive success of those schools and, and the involvement 
uh, and the expansion of diversity in the board. And along the same vein, I'll be frank that I have ulterior motives here, and I'm sure Ben does as well. But to someone that says, I want to be on the board one day, what can we do now? And what do you as the president look for in new board members? Um, so the the board application process um, is one where you you apply to be on the board uh, and you serve a two-year candidacy period. So there's kind of an initial review of an application that you submit by the executive committee, which is also the nominating committee. Uh, they review your application and will make a recommendation to the board about whether you um, should should be a member of the board or not. And uh, things that we look at uh, are both involvement in, in AMTA. Um, so think recommendations that I have to people who eventually want to become involved with the board are to, when you graduate, you know, reach back out to us and, and volunteer to AMTA rep, go judge at tournaments. Uh, even if you don't have time to get involved with coaching, if you're in law school and you just don't have time and you're not crazy like I was to do that while you're in law school, um, you know, volunteer to help on a committee, uh, and, and give back and, and serve on a committee for a few years. When we see an application come through, we want to see a demonstrated, uh, contribution to the organization post-graduation beyond just simply competing. Um, and we also, you know, the application itself asks for a statement about why you want to be on the board. And so we, we consider that very seriously about what your motivations are, what you're looking to accomplish, and what your perspective is. Um, and we, we encourage expanding perspectives and, and differing backgrounds. That can be anywhere from lawyers to academics uh, and certainly, you know, women and, and different racial backgrounds and socioeconomic backgrounds and things like that to make sure that our board is as representative as it can be of, of our membership. Um, you know, I hear a lot of people uh, as I go around to tournaments and things like that, talk about the board only being a certain program or a certain type of person that coaches a nationals team. And I think if a lot of people looked more closely at the background of the people on the board, you would see that that is very far from the case. Um, a lot of people are more closely related to my story where yes, now I do coach a team that has done very well the last three years, but before three years ago, I had never been to nationals in any competitive capacity, either coaching or competitor. Uh, and there are a lot of board members that are like that. And there are a lot of board members who understand what it is like to be a student run program, uh, to be a program that doesn't have a lot of money uh, and to, to be a new program, trying to make your way into this very competitive organization. So along those lines, and we may be three of the least capable people in the country of doing a speed round, but uh, we want to go through a few individual things that were on the minute, some of which I think are being considered more seriously and others um, maybe uh, less so, but uh, are still interesting topics. And the first one that we want to go to uh, is improper invention. Uh, we saw for the first time this postseason, this past postseason, uh, two specific instances where teams and competitors were sanctioned for invention of facts that violated the rules and there were memos that were issued as such. This is obviously 
a fairly significant event given that that had essentially never been done before at least in the in the uh, immediate past that's documented uh, online so i'm curious first and foremost what are your thoughts on starting to enforce invention of fact more substantially and then i know there's a motion on the table a motion uh, to be considered next weekend to give more guidance to maybe clarify that rule do you have any sense of what direction that discussion might go in terms of clarifying that rule and how we're going to approach invention of fact moving forward sure um i think i'll i'll start this kind of area by saying that as you know and really this goes for the whole conversation but Anything that I'm saying on here is kind of in my personal capacity and not necessarily the view of AMTA specifically, unless I'm, I'm kind of indicating that. Um, also, as the president, as the chair of the meeting, I'm, I'm actually not allowed to vote on these motions unless there's a tie. I only vote in the case of a tie. Um, so to the extent that, uh, you know, I will kind of give an opinion on the general topics, but I, it's really not my place to give a, an opinion specifically about the motions that as they are before the board. Um, because that's kind of for the board to talk about. Um, so to, to your question about the invention of fact, you're very correct that this year was a, uh, a, at least from the outward perspective, a dramatic change from what AMTA has done in terms of enforcing invention of fact. Um, and I think this is an area where if you look back at the AMTA minutes, uh, there have been a lot of motions about invention of fact over, I would say, every single year that I've been in a board meeting. Um, so this has kind of been an ongoing issue. Um, and you compound that with recently we, uh, the, the case writers have started having affidavit lists or statement lists witnesses. Um and I think that's a great thing. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I enjoy it. I enjoy it as a coach and I enjoy the realism that that provides because in real life, a criminal defendant would never provide a sworn statement that would be malpractice for an attorney to let them do that. Um, <laughs> so I enjoy the realism that that provides. But one of the things that that happens there as it's kind of created this arms race, maybe for lack of a better way of describing it which is teams across the country have taken that on as a challenge to see what are the craziest things that they can invent and get away with that are within the confines of the rules. And I think the discussion internally that we have been having is, you know, looking at the educational mission of what we're doing and, and trying to ensure that what we're providing is in line with, you know, teaching good ethics and morals both just in a general sense, but even more specifically to people who intend to go to law school um, and ensuring that we're providing accurate practices for people to use as they go into becoming a lawyer. Um, you know, in my legal practice, if I talk to one of my witnesses for one of my clients and they know or say something that doesn't help my case, I can't just change it. <laughs> um, and I can't just tell them to lie about it or leave it out. Um, and, and so for us in AMTA to be allowing that or encouraging that, uh, to the extent that, 
you see teams going on and doing well competitively with with that sort of approach, it's it's not what we want to be providing. And so what I think you saw this year was us trying to take the first steps in uh, enforcing those rules. Uh, I think there's certainly a difference of opinion amongst the board members about what those enforcements should be. Um, there's even a difference in opinions on the board about what exactly is an invention of fact. I think if you ask me for what I thought it was versus even other members of the executive committee, you might get very different answers on that. Um, I don't think that's a problem, but I think that's something that the board needs to figure out. And I think that's you know part of what we're going to be discussing next weekend and ensuring that we're clear about what that means uh, within the confines of our competition, especially in a world where we're going to be taking away or could be taking away uh, bids and, and things that people have worked hard for. Um, so we want to make sure that there's fair notice and fair warning out there to the competitors about what is and isn't allowed and and what the ramifications are for that. Um, and so I think we looked at the situations that happened this year. Now, I wasn't on the competition response committee uh, that evaluated or investigated these issues. Um but I think, you know, they investigated the issues. They, they decided that it uh, violated our rules and that they wanted to, you know, start taking a stand on what that means. Um, and I think that was, in my opinion, it was a step in the right direction and, and starting to curb conduct that probably has for too long gone unchecked. Uh, and certainly some of that unchecking is, is our fault, AMTA's fault for not maybe doing something more specific about this earlier. You know, I'm really glad you mentioned though, that the challenge of the differences of opinions, because I think that for me is, is what I find so interesting about this topic as a coach, obviously. And then as someone who has done mock trial for a period of time, I competed in law school at a competition that had a necessary inference rule. And it was essentially you have the words on the paper and that's it, you know, yep. and, and you yep. have an obligation, you know, to do nothing but that. I don't think that's the right system, but I, I'm very uh, curious to see if it's even possible to get to a solution to this that can be enforced across the spectrum with so many different opinions that, you know, go on all different sides of the spectrum on the board and then in the larger community. Do you, I mean, do you think it's possible to find a solution? Um, I, I like to believe that it is. Um, and I think um, that comes from us just having these conversations both in the community and, and amongst the board about, you know, what do we want this, this activity to be about? Um, your point about the law school thing is exactly right. Cause I actually, I've talked with you know, Justin Bernstein specifically about this because he you know, recently transitioned to coaching law school. So he's had the experience of learning and looking at those rules and how they are. They are very different than what we do. Um, and we actually were laughing about like, can you imagine if we were to enforce that same sort of rule in a college competition and the reaction, <laughs> the reaction we would get to that would be kind of hilarious. Just, um, but it would be a very uh, stark contrast to what we currently do. It's hard because there, it's it's a fine line between wanting to allow for the creativity that makes 
mock trial fun, um, but also wanting to ensure that it's an even playing field and, and trying to get out the gamesmanship of of what we're doing. You know, because in in real life, when you go in to try a case, you know what those facts are. You've in, you've interviewed the witnesses, you've deposed the witnesses, um, and you've conducted written discovery and all that all that stuff. And and you know what everyone's going to say. And everyone argues the facts. You argue what the people say and you make the best arguments that you can. And that's just kind of, I think, where we want to get it to is to get it to where it's an even playing field. And it's really about the advocacy, uh, the presentation of the witnesses and the work of the attorneys in the courtroom and not so much about, you know, what can be made up and, you know, what can we do to throw off the other side so that they can't react to me. That's the part that's unfair. And that's the part that at least personally, I would like to get out of what we're doing. And so it's about crafting definitions. I think that they kind of find that balance. So will something that happened on our last uh, podcast was when, when we were speaking with Nick Ramos and he was talking about the judging pool. One of the things that he said that really stuck with me at least was that a good judging pool punishes teams for mistakes. And it's something that I actually really agree with, um, but it's it's a tough line to toe because you've got a lot of teams that will, you know, end up not talking about really important facts. I know that in the past season, you know, we played teams that didn't call uh, Carrie Bellione, um and they didn't call uh, Detective Nichols, and they just never even addressed the the eyewitness uh, recollection. And at a certain point, you say as the defense, oh my gosh, how could they have missed this huge thing about the case? And yet, you know, to a judge that maybe hasn't seen the case before, doesn't know that that exists, they're told, oh, you know, don't punish them based on the merits of the case. They They work with what they have. And they may not know that that team passed up an eyewitness's recollection because they, they thought that there was a stronger witness to call for them. And I, I guess my question is, and it doesn't necessarily have a, a single answer to, but it's tough with these judges. Is there, you know, if we'd say something, then we're kind of punishing some teams that choose to do these more wild theories that aren't even necessarily inventing anything, but are just kind of towing that line of selective usage of facts, I guess, is the best way to use it. I mean, I think I think some of what you're talking about, we try to leave in the purview of of the case writers, which is, you know, force, you know, you've seen in some cases where they force witness selections or they force witness calls. Um, you know, uh, a few years ago, there was a forced uh, expert witness call, you know, as a responsive expert uh, to, to the state's expert or whatever. And, you know, so that you can't, um, you know, if the defense wanted to call that witness, you couldn't have a situation where the prosecution could basically object out the whole witness for relevance because they didn't talk about it during their case in chief and you had the required call. So the case writers tried to take that into account in terms of, um, you know, the balancing of the case and, and the gamesmanship of, of the case. And so to the extent that there is that ability, you know, I think that's kind of part of the fun of it. That's part of the creativity of it. Um, you know, maybe if you were trying this case in real life, would you 
not call the investigating officer uh, in a criminal case? Probably not. You'd probably always call that investigating officer. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's also kind of part of the mock trialness of it is that if you don't have a student on your team who plays a good cop, you know, maybe you don't call the cop. <laughs> <laughs> so getting back for a minute to the nuts and bolts here, we talked a little bit earlier about the NCT and hosts. And so I want to talk for just a minute about invitationals and finding hosts. Uh, you know, UMBC co-hosted a regional for the first time last year. We've hosted an invitational in, in past years and we like hosting tournaments. I know Drew's team hosts tournaments and I, I went and looked and at least on AMTA's website last year, there were 65 individual <laughs> tournaments yeah. uh, with results on the website. And I know a lot of those tournaments are just as big, if not bigger, uh, than what a regional or an orcs would be, and oftentimes are just as elaborate as those tournaments. So I think my first question is just more of an individual question for you and what you've experienced with AMTA, which is, can it get frustrating sometimes when there are so many invitationals and it's very challenging to get hosts? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, <laughs> it is, you know... It's exceedingly frustrating because you have all these invitationals that do that do very good work, and, and it is very much a, a love hate relationship with AMTA and invitationals because uh, we love them in in the sense that they support the educational mission of what we're doing. Uh, but it, you know, I mean, it comes down it comes down to money uh, for I think a lot of people at the end of the day, which is you know quite frankly, you can make more money hosting an Invitational than you can hosting an AMTA tournament. That goes to the funding, that goes to the money and the finances of, of AMTA's organization and what we're doing. And, you know, we're certainly trying to, and have been trying to over the years, uh, address the funding issue, providing incentives for hosting, you know, waiving the school registration fee, which saves people $450, uh, waiving the Invitational fee, which allows you to continue to host your Invitational but also host for AMTA and not have to pay us to host your invitational and trying to increase the stipends as much as we can to, to make sure that we're providing adequate funding for the tournaments. But at the end of the day, you know, some of these invitationals charging upwards of five, six, $700, I think uh, downtown charges like a thousand bucks or something crazy. There's just more money to be made in that. And, and I think that's a fact of what we're dealing with. Um, certainly AMTA is aware of that and we're trying to create ways to encourage people to, um, either also host for us or host for us instead. Um, you know, speaking as someone who has done both, uh, I would, you know, I think I heard you guys last time talking about how terrible orcs is and orcs are probably the worst kind of mock trial tournament there is on the face of this earth uh, in terms of their stress level and, and, mm -hmm. and just the terribleness of orcs. Let me tell you, trying to host orcs and also compete in orcs is even worse, if that's possible. <laughs> um, it, is, it is not fun, and, but it's, you know, it's kind of, a necessary thing where you, we need people to do this. You know, we get, when I was tech chair, 
I would get so many emails from teams who would, who would complain is not the right word, but would, would come to me with the fact that they had to travel very long distances to, uh, to their regional. And I'm, I'm extremely sympathetic to that because I understand that, that the travel, the driving uh, can be both dangerous and expensive. Uh, the hotels that are required are also expensive. Uh, I'm certainly, you know, as a team, when I was at Elon, we, we drove to Louisville for regionals most of the time. We went to DC. Uh, you know, we drove way too far, way too late at night uh, in, in what in hindsight was probably extremely unsafe. Um, but we had to because there wasn't any tournament closer um, because no one would host. And so my response, and it's kind of tongue in cheek, but also kind of serious to most of those teams was, I look forward to receiving your application to host an Hampton tournament next year. You know, if you don't want to travel, guess what? I have a solution for you. You can sleep in your own bed and go to regionals. Um, and, and that involves hosting a tournament for us. Um, hosting a tournament for AMTA, I would argue, is significantly easier than hosting an Invitational. Um, because quite literally, all you have to do is reserve 12 rooms for trials and recruit judges. AMTA provides you tap cards and ballots. AMTA provides you trophies. AMTA gives you a check to, to pay for the facilities and pay for the food that you're providing the judges. And AMTA gives you AMTA representatives who come in and will run the tournament for you. Um, so all you have to do as an AMTA host is get us rooms and judges. Uh, anything you do above and beyond that is awesome and the competitors will appreciate it, but it is not an expectation of, of AMTA. Um, and, and so that was always my pitch as TAC chair. That will continue to be my pitch going forward. Um, I will say, and we can talk about it if you guys want to, you know, there are other, we're looking at alternative hosting mechanisms. We've, we've tested out some of those mechanisms around the country. Uh, in terms of looking at other ways to host tournaments for AMTA beyond, you know, having teams specifically host, we need hosts. And like you guys said, there's a lot of invitationals and, and we struggle to find 35 hosts every single year. Will, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, about having teams host regionals, uh, especially as Haverford, we're a program that uh, currently doesn't host a regionals. Uh, we do host an invitational. Um, and it was funny because it was something that, I thought a lot about doing uh, this year, and my thought process was basically twofold. That there were two main concerns that I had. The first was that, um, as the incoming president and as you know, one of the people that was going to be running our our invitational, I'm probably going to be competing in regionals and going to be doing a lot of work up until then. And I know how stressful it is to run a tournament. And man, it would be awful to have to worry about running a tournament on top of, uh, you know, getting myself ready for regionals. Um, and, you know, obviously I, I wouldn't be competing in that same tournament, but even just the uh, being in such a short time frame, you know, I'd rather be prepping myself. And the second issue that or concern really was with judging. And for me, this was that 
I want to believe that we have these really high rigorous standards for AMTA sanctioned tournaments, which to a certain extent we do. Um, and my greatest fear would be to host a regional tournament and to, you know, God forbid, not have the most, the best possible judges I could get. And, you know, obviously for our invitational, we, we want to have good judges, but there's a little more forgiveness there if you have a, you know, an alumni judge around or if you have someone that's, uh, you know, qualified in some ways and less than others, but, you know, to a certain extent, just a warm body to fill the room. Um, you know, obviously, we want to have the best we can at every tournament, but at AMTA sanctioned tournaments, I really want to have nothing but the best. And I know that on our end, at least, that's almost the biggest obstacle with hosting a tournament is is finding the judges. And I'll say this. Um, as someone that thought about hosting a tournament for AMTA, if there was like a uh, a judging pool that you guys could pull from and um, even just send us like, hey, like these are the people in your general area that, you know, have competed for AMTA in the past or are in law school that have judged for tournaments, maybe reach out to these people. I feel like that would really help at least me um, in being tempted to run a tournament just because... I mean, then that big obstacle is kind of, to a certain extent, subverted in that there's so much help in getting the judges. So a large follow-up to, do you think that AMTA would ever do that? Um, do you think AMTA would ever kind of help with finding judges in order to uh, increase the number of regional hosts? Um, absolutely. I'll, I'll start with the first part of your question. First, to, to you being a student trying to run a, a, a tournament, um, and I'll say that we we have plenty of uh, student-run teams who who host for us, and we work with those teams to ensure you know as a host you get to pick the weekend that you host, um, and and then you know we work with you in terms of saying like all right if you drew or on your team's A team and you don't want your A team to compete at your regional, then we make sure that 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 doesn't happen. Um, and so we, we work with hosts to, to accommodate those preferences and specifically working with student run organizations, um, who, who look at those sorts of obstacles. And, and we do that every single year. Um, you know, university of North Carolina, university of Georgia are examples of past AMTA hosts who, uh, are student run who we've worked with to ensure that that's, that that's not an issue. Um, to the second part of your question, and we didn't even talk about this in advance, but I'm glad you asked this question. Um, I am actually going to be creating, uh, a new committee, a new subcommittee of the of TAC of tournament administration in AMTA called, uh, judge recruitment. And, and their sole job is going to be AMTA taking more ownership of the judge recruitment process. Um, I think, and, and there's fault, even, you know, there's fault on me for this as well, is that I think AMTA has for too long kind of skirted the responsibility of uh, the judge recruitment process. And we have put that onus on our hosts um, and kind of done the heat, you know, see here, no evil sort of thing until we show up at the tournaments. And then we get angry if, if a host didn't do their job and didn't recruit these hosts when 
we didn't do anything in advance to try to help them out. And that's not fair to the host. And it's, it's not right for us to be doing that. And so what I envision us doing is, is having AMP to take a more uh, involved role with judge recruitment. Um, one thing that we're doing is we're, we've, uh, we're in the process of contracting with an outside company that's going to be developing and revamping AMPTA's website. Um, and part of that may involve uh, creating a judge recruitment uh, program app within the AMPTA website where we maintain and monitor judge lists, judge recruitment, and things like that around the country. Um, now, you know, certainly we don't need to do that for hosts who recruit, you know, Greenville, South Carolina, for example, Glenn Haber-Neubauer does not need help recruiting judges. He gets like eight of them per round. Um, but there, that is not true. That is, that is the exception. That is not the norm. Uh, and, and so we want to be looking at identifying the hosts that need our help. Uh, we want to be helping them. And, and like you said, if we take a more ownership role in doing that, you know, that gives us the information, the lists, uh, where if, you know, next year Georgia Tech decides not to host anymore, uh, AMTA would have the list of judges in Atlanta to give to, to give to someone else in Atlanta to, to take over the hosting responsibility. And so for someone like you at, at, at Haverford, if you wanted to start hosting outside of Philadelphia and we had this list that we could hand to you, you know, that's a thing that um, that would help you and probably ease the the stress that you'd have of that process. That's that's really interesting. Uh, I, I'm excited to see where that goes. And I can say in, in response to uh, what you were saying, in, you know, in answer to a previous question, I completely agree uh, from UMBC's perspective, having hosted an invitational and a regional and, and we're doing both this coming season, hosting a regional is easier. Uh, even though Drew's concerns about having your teams competing there, it's not always easy to have that. AMTA does a tremendous, tremendous amount to make hosting a regional possible. And so if there's anyone out there that's thinking about doing it, we're fortunate that we co-host a regional with our good friends at Stevenson University. But I I think that it's more doable than people realize. And so it's exciting for me to uh, hear that, you know, AMTA is working on more groundwork related to something happening at the board meeting, how much of this connects to the possibility of increasing the inv invitational licensing fee? Cause that's something that's on the agenda. Uh, is that a mechanism for raising more revenue so that you can support AMTA hosts more in the future? Yeah, that, that is a motion that I can speak to because it's a, a motion that I made. <laughs> um, I, I think, you know, it's, it is a motion an idea to rate, you know, if it passes any revenue that's generated and, and initially when we passed the invitational licensing from the get-go, the thought process there was to turn around and, and give that revenue directly back to the AMTA hosts. Um, and so, yes, the, the increase in that, you know, is it will then turn around and be given directly back to hosting AMTA tournaments. Um, you know, we, I think I'd rather call it like a pay to play sort of thing. If you go to more invitationals, um, you know, in theory, you have the money to do that. And, you know, you're, 
we use it as an intellectual property. You know, you're using Amped as intellectual property of the case file to compete at these invitationals. And, and so it's about us maintaining that IP right over the case materials and, and recouping, I guess, what you'd call, for lack of a better way, a, a royalty fee for using the case at invitationals. Um, and so the increase of that's from the $2 to $4 per team per trial is, you know, designed to increase that revenue and that we intend to then, you know, turn around and give back to the host. Well, Will, I can tell you that you've made a believer out of me and uh, I'm hoping to stay involved in the empty community <laughs> and I will definitely look into hosting and uh, great minds definitely think alike. If you guys are really going to do that judging uh, pool thing, that would be honestly amazing. Um, one thing that I wanted to talk about that, you know, I know we mentioned the whole concept of tabling, uh, different motions, but one that caught my eye, I'm um, one that is very dear to me, um, was the issue of tab cards being photographed in the tab room. And, you know, I understand this was tabled and it may be that you had, uh, no input on it at all, but I'm curious what your thoughts on it are, um, it may be that it's something that, you know, Ampta doesn't really want to discuss at this time, but I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on it right now. Um, I think my thoughts on that topic, I, I got to put on two different hats to, to talk about. Um, if I'm, I'm talking from my, my Ampta perspective, the global, you know, perspective, I think transparency is a good thing. I think that is why, you know, AMTA has maintained open tab rooms the way that they have, um, you know, for anyone that was involved in high school mock trial. I mean, I know that every state's different, but my understanding is that the majority of states uh, from a high school perspective are extremely private or closed. Uh, and it's just kind of this dark room where someone comes out of at the end of the tournament and tells you who wins. Um, law school is kind of similar. You know, AMTA, I think, does a very good job at maintaining that transparency. And, and we want to maintain that transparency for the competitors in the tournament. Um, so I separate that from kind of two other areas where I, when I look at taking pictures or publicizing results during a tournament, I think there's always been this kind of unwritten rule as long as I've been involved in AMTA, um, which will be 15 years this coming year, um, that we all kind of respect every team's uh, perspective on sharing results. Uh, so for people who choose to not know results until the end of the weekend, we respect that by not publicizing results during the tournament. Um, but of course, tab rooms are open. They're always there. You can always go look to make sure that there's no funny business. You know, we respect the right of those teams to make that decision. On the other hand, if you're a team that wants to know all your results as everything's going on, like I said, tab rooms are open. You can go see your results and you can go tell every member of your team how you're doing and every score and every rank. Um, and for me, that issue is kind of just about respecting the, the ability of different teams to have those different perspectives. You know, I personally, um, I run my teams blind. They don't know how they're doing. Um, that's not universally true. There are situations where I have told them how they're doing. And I use that as a coach to, uh, you know, to code, to motivate them. And, you know, as I see appropriate, but I think that I view that as my prerogative as a coach. And I view that as 
Georgia Tech's mock trials decision to have that be our policy. Um, there are coaches who I've talked to who feel as emphatically differently about that as I feel that people should fly blind is they feel that everyone should know everything. And I respect that. I think that's your, if that's your philosophy and that's how you want to approach this, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that either. I think it's just a different difference in philosophy. And so when you get to the prospect of taking pictures of tab cards and publishing them publicly on social media or blogs or whatever, that changes the dynamic where, you know, if they're published like that in tournament, um, sometimes teams, you know, will then see information that even unintentionally uh, that they don't want to see. And I, I think that violates the respect that we all kind of give to each other as individual teams and programs to kind of have our own philosophies about this. Um, so I don't think it, in my mind, it's a matter, you know, from a transparency perspective, anyone can go into a tab room at any time and see how things are being done. Um, so we're not trying to, uh, at least in my view, would not be to close tab rooms or anything like that. Not, not that extreme. Um, but I do think, you know, it's just a matter of respecting different coaches and teams philosophies on what they want to do with that information, you know, and certainly as an outsider, if you're not at a tournament and you want to text somebody and find out how they're doing or what, I mean, I'm guilty as that as anyone, when I, when I was a coach at Elon, like, and I didn't go to nationals, I was absolutely texting coaches and trying to find out how people were doing when I wasn't there, you know, and, and during works on weekends of works. Now I'm texting people trying to figure out how people are doing, you know, Where's UVA at? Where's Miami at? Whatever. Um, I want to know that. But I also, I'm not also texting the students on the team and telling them that. I'm not violating those coaches' prerogatives of, you know, having whatever philosophy they want to have um, on that. And so I think that's, for me, that's the line. Yeah, and Will, I, I think that it should be noted, I really sympathize with what you're talking about as far as revealing to uh, teams that don't want to know, teams that are going blind have every right to. And I think that I would hope that anyone listening would agree that telling someone their record when they have asked to be blind is never okay. Um, and it really should never happen. I think that it is an unspoken rule and should remain that way. Something kind of fun uh, that I think, though, about mock trial is the fact that we do have that open tab room. Um as a funny anecdote, up until last year, no one in Haverford mock trial knew that you could view the tab cards during a round. <laughs> and me and a couple other people would literally get all of the pairings and try to reverse engineer on Saturday night how everyone was doing and be like, oh, you know, like, where are we in the standings? Like, are we doing well? And it was until I was hosting uh, the tournament and we uh, and we were looking at the tab manual that I was like, wait a minute, there are these tab card things that you can just go in and ask for. And it <laughs> absolutely changed uh, the way that I approached going to a tournament. And I'll tell you that I got a lot more sleep on Saturday night all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. um, but the thing that was so cool about that for us was that, um, you know, I found tab cards to be a really exciting way to kind of follow the path of a team. Uh, I've reached a point in mock trial where I have friends on a lot of other programs and similar to what you're talking about, I want to know how they're doing. And, you know, maybe it's not necessarily, you know, calling them up if they're blind and saying, hey, how'd you do? 
but um, I think it's kind of cool to be able to watch, you know, and see how our team's doing. Oh my goodness, you know, X team didn't make it, uh, you know, isn't in a power protected round all of a sudden, or they're, you know, playing another really good team at regionals. Uh, that's going to be an exciting round. Uh, you know, I think that one of the great examples you can compare it to is if you think about professional sports, you know, if I tell you that uh, at the end of the year, the NBA finals, Golden State wins. Well, that's not very exciting. But if I tell you that, you know, okay, the first game they win, uh, the second game the Cavs win, of course, that's not how it happened this year. But, you know, if you know the path, if you know that it got to game seven and that they were tied and that, you know, they pulled it out in overtime, that's a much more exciting path to see and is kind of uh, is is a more exciting way to to learn about and follow the sport. And I see mock trial very similarly to that and that I get passionate about it. I want to know how people are doing. And I think that that openness, even as someone not competing at the tournament, is still exciting. Um, so that's my kind of spiel on why I think it's so important to continue to publicize them and never to publicize them to someone that wants to be blind. But to those that do want to know, I think that they should have access to it and, um, and that it's a cool thing to be able to have. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I don't I don't disagree with you because I I'm as guilty as anyone as, you know, wanting to follow my friends who are other coaches and, and programs that the tech is friendly with um, as they go through the AMTA, AMTA season at tournaments that we're not at. And so I think, you know, I don't know what the right answer is to it um, necessarily, but I think at least where my passion lies is not necessarily trying to convince everyone that they should be blind. That is everyone's individual choice in terms of a team or a program. I think where my passion does lie is ensuring that whatever process we do have respects the the ability of those teams in the competition to make that decision for themselves and you know and and abide by that uh and not have anything kind of forced upon them by especially amta um you know publicizing results after each round or anything or anything like that well well we can't thank you enough for taking some time to chat with us i know we like lots of other people are looking forward to seeing what happens at the board meeting. I'm, I'm excited to attend my first board meeting. Uh, and I think there's a lot of great things that are going on and thank you so much for sitting down and chatting with us. And hopefully we can do this again after the board meeting to see where things go and, you know, maybe look forward towards the 2018, 2019 season. Absolutely. And I'll say that, um, at least uh, we we made the attempt to use AMTA's Twitter to publicize the results of each of the motions as they happened during the meeting. Um, I know that doesn't necessarily give you any insight into uh, the debate that occurred, but at least tells you whether you know things passed or things didn't. Um, and then you can see the minutes, and and I'd absolutely be glad to come back and and uh, you know answer any questions or talk about things further as as the year progresses and things like that. So I appreciate what you guys are doing. Thanks for doing it. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Mock Review. If you have a question, a suggested discussion topic, or a response to anything we said on this episode, you can reach us at themockreview at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider rating and reviewing The Mock Review on iTunes, Google Play, or however you listen to your podcasts. This helps us move up the charts and reach more listeners. 
You can always find The Mock Review on social media at facebook.com slash themockreview or on Twitter at themockreview. Join us next week as we discuss our interview with Will Warhay and look ahead to some pressing issues facing the AMTA community, as well as go into more detail about what we're watching at the upcoming board meeting. Until then, this has been The Mock Review with Ben and Drew. 